Welcome to the first ever episode of Talking About the Future. My name is Robert DeNuffel, and today I'm talking with Swift Center Director Michael Story. Michael and I have known each other since we were qualified as super forecasters together in the Good Judgment Forecasting Tournament. Michael went on to be a managing director of Good Judgment Inc. before founding the Swift Center last year. Michael, thanks for coming on my first Substack podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Robert. I want to start by talking briefly about Russia, since Russia has been in the news the last couple of years. Years ago, in another podcast interview we did, you told me you had a trick for forecasting what Russia would do. Could you tell us what that trick was? Yeah, so this goes back a few years. um, And I think it speaks to something quite important about forecasting, right? So it's really an interesting question about how much of your fellow forecaster's perspective should inform your perspective, which is something that we often think about, right? Like, I'm thinking about this question in the abstract, but I also know that I'm doing that alongside a bunch of other people who are also thinking about it. And that's information about what's what's going to happen. So I can either, like, do a kind of fundamental analysis where I can go and look at the situation, figure out, you know, where, where is this going? But, or I can, well, and or I can look at my colleagues and see, okay, they all think X, uh, and, uh, and how should I understand that? And so, yeah, with Russia, I think that um, as we've seen over the last few years, right, Russia has been playing quite a, 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 you know, probably a sharp bat, you might say, right? They've been, you know, fairly uh, assertive in international affairs in a way that took some people by surprise. My heuristic for forecasting Russia back in those days, and I think has like stuck with me ever since, is when my fellow forecasters might assign a probability to to, to Russia doing something where they would be uh, like pretty assertive or they would take some kind of aggressive stance. Uh, that I would just up that by 10%, and that worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> so I'd say, well, I think you've got pretty good fundamental analysis, but there's one piece of the puzzle here, which is, uh, uh, yeah, a willingness to have a more aggressive posture on their part, and I think that you're underestimating it. And if you think that there's a consistent bias among the people around you, then you can actually save yourself a lot of time by saying, okay, what if I think you're always off? If I think you're generally, you're, you're generally in the right direction, but you're off by a bit in this one specific way, then you can like pick up some some accuracy points by correcting what you see as that as that bias. So yeah, that was my rule of thumb back in those days, and I think yeah, that's remained the case. Although I think the alpha in that is gone now. I think everybody sees like more clearly that Russia is a bit more assertive than people thought they were uh, in the uh, maybe in the nineties. So you actually had studied in Russia, right? And you told me that Correct. you had talked to people in the Russian ministries or some people who are in government, right? And and just had this sense that they were much more expansionist than other people realized. And I guess my question is, I think you're probably right, the alpha has probably shrunk a lot there. But why do you think it was so hard for people outside of Russia to see how expansionist the Russian government, government was? Oh, that's a good question. I think some of that is your, like the trade-offs that you might be willing to make so, I mean, you could go all the way back, right, and say it's very hard to see into other countries. Most people don't visit many other countries. They don't think about them very frequently. Um, there are really weird examples where there'll be like a global phenomenon, like a disease outbreak. Like COVID is a great example, right? People really have no idea what happened in other countries during COVID other than their own, right? They, they literally don't know what happened. Um, and... Uh, even like quite senior people who you would think would know and they don't know. And they go, well, we don't know what happens if a country tries this or that policy. And you go, well, you know, this country did that policy and you can go and see what happened to them. Uh, But that's very, very rare to make that international comparison. During monkeypox, there was a very similar thing, right? We had the monkeypox outbreak. You had the same thing there. This very, very strange, like 
kind of, well, strange to me, but this kind of parochialism where people would only look at data that was produced in their own country. But like, this is a disease. So, you know, like there's, there's no real reason to only look at data in your country. You should look at what's going on in other countries. But it was very, very common. So you would talk, you would see like senior epidemiologists writing stuff where they would only ever look at data about, say, yeah, monkeypox from within their own country. And then if someone said, well, what about X? They'd say, oh, we don't know. They'd say, well, you, you can find out. Look, you know, the Germany had this experience and you can see what happened. But it's very, very rare. So people tend to like focus on in their country and they tend to absorb the set of assumptions and trade-offs that govern how things are done in their country. And so I think that uh, like if you, uh, if you get that wrong and if you look at a country like Russia where, you know, there's like a fairly high willingness to tolerate some losses in order to meet the goals, these like fairly, you know, aggressive goals, you might say in my country that wouldn't be tolerated, right? And, and you would, you, or you would say like the, you know, the cost is very high. So you look at what's happened in, uh, uh, you know, with Ukraine or whatever, right? The, 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 the cost to Russia participating in that has been pretty high. Maybe not as high as is always claimed uh, in the media, but it's been a, that's an expensive thing to do. And it might not have been anticipated in advance that it would be that expensive, but some of the other things that they've done have been pretty costly. And, um, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, the, the, you know, a country wouldn't do that because they wouldn't want to eat the cost. And if you underestimate the, the willingness to tolerate the trade-off and you don't think about how people might see it differently in another place, then I think you can, you can come a cropper by doing that. And I guess part of that is something that I've noticed definitely also affects this problem a little bit, which is that certainly in Western countries, in English-speaking countries, um, English-speaking countries are, are extremely international in a sort of, in, in one sense, in that there's a huge amount of migration between um, the world and, and English-speaking countries and, and among each other. And what that can then do is create a kind of set of assumptions where people think about how different groups within a country get along with each other. And that can then like also kind of create a kind of slightly false, false assumptions about how relationships between countries. So I think there's a bunch of like things going on that can make you end up a bit wonky about what another country might do. You, 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 you don't think about the, the, the trade-offs they're willing to tolerate. You don't think about their situation very much at all in most cases. And you can also get a little bit thrown off by looking at kind of a lot of people supplant. Yeah, they kind of mentally just swap out relationships between groups within a country for relationships between countries, which is which is like a, a whole other problem that has all, all kinds of other implications, but in, including for forecasting. Yeah, it's interesting because I think when I was growing up, Russia was, if anything, too demonized, right? It was the bear in the woods, which Sting had to remind us that the Russians love their children too, right? And uh, I, it's possible that we took that too far and said, oh, they wouldn't do the things that we wouldn't do. And um, maybe that was wrong. Maybe that was too much empathy uh, for a country and a culture and a politics that's not the same as ours. Yeah, and I think also people put a lot of stock, um, which is, again, is, I guess, like a Western view. And one, you know, there's a good reason to think that, that like the kind of form of government is very important and the kind of framing of the institutions is very important. And so if you saw like, you know, and obviously like Russia went through giants of changes in the 90s and you could look at that and say like, well, we just can't apply what we thought before to now because it's so different. Um, and, and uh, you know, like all the flags are different, and you know, this kind of thing. And, um, and maybe putting too much emphasis on, on stuff like that, right? Like on, on flags and uh, formal titles and, and this kind of thing. And maybe not thinking enough about the continuity of government that obviously is there and the continuity of norms and ideas and, and the culture that somebody from 
clearly, like if you were in, if you were frozen in 1970s Russia and you woke up in present day Russia, lots of things would be different, but lots of things would be similar because, you know, a form of government is like one factor about a country, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not the only thing or even the dominant thing, I think. So let's talk about the Swift Center. I understand the idea for the Swift Center sort of grew out of an observation that you made initially on Twitter that it's hard to find an example of a forecast that, quote, resulted in a change of course or a meaningful benefit to a consumer. Why do you think that is? Why do I think that we haven't had the impact that we could? Yeah, that forecasting hasn't had the impact that, that we, it could. So I do believe that. Yeah, I think that I think that we, you and I, I mean, personally, and we as a community of forecasting researchers and practitioners and whatever, we've we've not had as much impact as we could. Um, but I should qualify that by saying that, you know, we're starting from a low base and, and uh, you have to get a lot of basic research out of the way first, right, uh, to, to kind of to get to that point. So I don't think we've been wasting our time, but I think that a lot of the things we've been doing have been like fleshing out the basics and getting to a point where we can start to have more impact. Um, so I don't think it, we've, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we've wasted our time, but I think that what we, like going back to the start, right, where things all kind of kicked off with Good Judgment Project and all that sort of era, is what was the you know what were the circumstances of like winning a forecasting competition, like winning a forecasting tournament? How do, how do you win a tournament, right? So the way a forecasting tournament is run is whoever runs the tournament picks a bunch of topics that they think are interesting and useful and sets them out for forecasters to respond to. And your job as a forecaster is to assign probabilities or make estimates about this set of topics that somebody has given you. And if you, you know, and there are different mechanisms of score that you can use a prediction market, you can use a scoring rule, you can use all kinds of things. You basically end up with roughly the same ranking, whatever you do, because it's, you know, they're all pretty good ways of aggregating and identifying better forecasters. But in all those cases, the goal that you're trying to achieve is, is to identify who is, who is giving you good answers, right? So it's almost like an Olympic Games of forecasting. Okay, so like who's the best athlete, right? And we set up a system that allows us to identify people that are good. So if you think about, like I sometimes compare this to the, the ancient Olympics, right? The Athenian Olympics, the original Olympic Games. It's kind of waste around who's a good warrior, okay? Like how do we identify someone who's a really good warrior? Well, they're really good at throwing a discus. They can throw a javelin. They can run. They can wrestle. They can do all these things, right? And so, yeah, somebody who can do really well in the Athenian Olympic Games, that's a great warrior, right? You want them on your side. That's exactly who you want next to you uh, if there's a, a war starts. But that isn't necessarily, like, that, that, that doesn't solve your problem. Like, that's not, that doesn't give you, like, military tactics. That, you know, that, you're, that doesn't give you uh, the kind of uh, environment that you need to be effective in battle. That's, like, giving you great starting material. So I think that's kind of where I see forecasting. So a lot of the research that has been done was in this, kind of artificial environment that's much more similar to like a sports contest or a kind of Olympic games where we're trying to figure out like what's the best way to respond to these type of questions and figure out answers. Um, but then if you then go out in the world and say, okay, like we figured out really good ways to be accurate in answering this set of questions, right? For a given set of questions, we know a lot about how to answer these things accurately. And of course, as we know, you know, that it's selecting, selecting the right kind of people with the right kind of psychology and um, giving them training and support in particular ways and structuring them in teams and then using an aggregation algorithm to kind of, you know, pull in their forecast by recency or whatever, or whether you use a market or something like that that does that for you. You know, we know a lot about how to do that and, and kind of get rid of, of sorts of bias and problems and, and whatever. So that's great. 
But that's actually not a problem that anybody has in real life. I mean, maybe some people do, but that doesn't correspond that closely to the type of problems that um, decision makers deal with. Decision makers are quite unlikely to have a list of things that they're worried about and just need to assign probabilities to, right? That, 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 that's not the problem they have. Very frequently, that they don't, they don't have a list. They have a vague sense of concern about X country. And so I think that um, getting really good at putting probabilities on specific risks is very important. And like we, I'm very, very proud of all the work that everybody did to do that. And my small part in it uh, was a very meaningful and important part of my life. And that's fantastic. Um, but I think that the, the next challenge is to, is to better target that information. Because I think that, yeah, I, I, I think that the danger is that, that if you get very, very good at saying for this given set of risks, here are, here's what I think the probabilities are, you are missing some of the wood for the trees and that how do you make sure that those are the right risks? It's pretty expensive to put a team of forecasters on something. So if you forecast this thing, you're not forecasting something else, right? There's, there's a big opportunity cost to like looking at other things. And how do you actually target that in the right way? And so I would say that a lot of the kind of forecasting that, that has been done in a kind of Olympic game sense in the, you know, the kind of sports sense, it doesn't always produce information that's actionable or useful or it's not necessarily targeted to that, but often because it's not trying to do that, right? It's trying to identify who the best forecaster is. So the information that comes out of, out of these projects is really all about the people involved rather than like trying to make those predictions. And so when you think about a really valuable forecast, it's often in the form of a warning, like, hey, here's something you didn't think about. Um, but we think that this is a high risk. If you have a model where I'm waiting for you to tell me the stuff you're worried about and I put a probability on it, that doesn't happen, right? So there's a lot of circumstances where, yeah, we've got very good at figuring out who's a good forecaster, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're producing information that's valuable for making decisions. So the the original Good Judge project in some ways was optimized for finding out who's a good forecaster, for producing forecasting research, but not really for helping decision makers. You know, if we have the capacity to make good forecasts, how can we leverage that capacity to improve their decisions and help them? Yeah, so I think there's a few things we can do, and this is what SwiftSend is about, right? So, if you wanted to, if you wanted to take all of that fantastic research that exists on how to better answer a set of forecaster questions, and then say, okay, how do we make sure that we're answering the right questions to help a decision maker? Like, we can't just. I think that's the essence of the tweet story, right? Is like we're firing these forecasts out into the void and saying, here you go, here's what we think, right? But I feel like that's suboptimal. Like you need to hug very close decision makers and you need to understand the, the, the range of options they have and that kind of thing and get really close to try and figure out like what we think is helpful. So there's a few things I think that, that we can do that can be helpful. And these are what we spend our time on with Swift, right? So how do you, how do you, when you think about a decision, like what do you need? So you, you don't just need one forecast, right? You need loads. You need lots and lots of forecasts because you have a very wide range of possible actions. The bigger you are, the, the more things you might do, and therefore the, the, the bigger range of potential probabilities you need to understand. So, and th- many of those will be conditional probabilities. So that also makes things complicated. Tell us what you mean by conditional probabilities. So like, yeah, sorry. So like if, if then, so like, so you might have a, um, uh, you know, an outcome that you worry about. Like, it could be like one big thing that you're concerned about, you know, like, a, 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 you know, a, a civil war could break out in a country, right? And like, okay, that could happen at different scales. But basically, once it gets to a certain size, it's a big enough problem that you don't, that you, you, 
it, it almost collapses into like a binary thing, right? There's either a civil war that, or that you can you know, prevent the war or you can't, right? So, okay, that's helpful. So then you come and say, okay, Michael, I've, I've done a bunch of, fork, you know, think about this and here's my forecast. I think there's a 30% chance that you're going to see a civil war in this country in the next two years. So, okay, well, what do I do about that, <laughs> right? Like, that's helpful. So, okay, if I'm an insurance company and I want to price my risk or if I'm thinking about investing in that country and I think, okay, I'm going to build something, but, hey, if there's a 30% chance of war, then it's probably not worth it because my whatever I build is going to get, you know, trashed or whatever. That's kind of helpful in those circumstances. So I'm not saying that's not useful, but I think you can be even more helpful when you say, uh, if you're talking to a government or somebody that might have the ability to influence the outcome, you might say, okay, we see this risk. And we think that, you know, that, that it's conditional on the following things, right? So if this, uh, uh, you know, if the, the, this regional summit fails, then the risk goes up. Or, you know, if the regional doesn't fail, we think that, you know, the, the risk will be lower. Or you can look for the things that are associated with the outcome that, that maybe there might be something causal going on there and something that the decision maker can influence. And at that point, it becomes pretty interesting. So they can say, okay, we think that you're going to see this outcome, but if you take this action or if you do the following thing or something here that you can influence, you might see a, a different outcome. And I think that then becomes quite interesting. On the other side of it, there's also like conditional there being a civil war. What do you think the risk could be? So like if this bad outcome starts to look you know, materialize. Well, obviously, there's a range of things that, that could happen as a result of that. And how likely are they to happen? How, mu how much should you worry about that happening, right? Like, do you need to worry about this war breaking out? Of course, you know, everyone will worry about it. But like, how, how, you know, is it likely to involve a neighboring country? So does somebody else get involved? So then you could like conditional on there being a, a civil war, then how likely is it that a neighboring country joins in or, or, or something like that where, you know, it could escalate even further beyond the outside of the country. So think about things conditionally is like much more the way decision makers think, right? They think, well, okay, here's a risk. What am I going to do about it? Can I avoid the risk? Can I influence the outcome? Can I, do I take steps to do something about it? Uh, if this risk happens, like how bad is it going to be? Do I need to prepare for that? Is there something I can do that can prepare me against those risks? So they're always thinking in these kind of trade-offs all the time. And so having a kind of flat forecast um, someone described it to me as like trying to read one letter at a time, right? You're seeing a, you're seeing part of the picture, but it's not enough really to go on. Um, and 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 the thing to take into consideration there is it's, it's also quite expensive. So if you're going to put a team of forecasters on something and they're going to produce this estimate, like we think there's a thirty percent chance of civil war in this country, you know they've probably put a lot of work into doing that, and that's cost you a lot of money, and it hasn't given you enough to go on. So then do you want to do that at all? Or do you want to just go with your gut? Or do you want to spend that budget some other way? So when you start to think about the trade-offs in terms of costs of getting information in different ways, that's when like making forecasting cheaper becomes more important as well. Because you need, you know, like, if you can produce 10 forecasts for the same price as one and you can maintain your accuracy level, that's like very valuable to decision maker because it actually becomes more affordable to when they're thinking about what to do. Yeah, so one thing with the Swift Center you've emphasized is trying to make forecasting, I guess, a, a profitable product, wanting to produce something that people will be willing to pay for. Why do you think that's important? Well, I, I think if, we, if we're not able to produce information that people value more than it costs to produce, like, <laughs> what are we doing, right? Like, like, to me, that's such an important factor. And I, you know, I, I, I think, and I say this with love as a member of the forecasting community for a long time, of course, but I think there can be a sense in our community of resting on laurels, of being a little bit 
willing to to kind of blame everybody else for not getting what we're trying to do, right? And 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 that's true of every subculture and community, right? But I think there's a little element here where we are trying to, you know, that sometimes you will read responsible people say, say, well, institutions are hostile to forecasting and probabilities because probabilities make people uncomfortable or it feels like gambling or an instinctive kind of disgust reaction to thinking about things probabilistically. And that's all true, right? Like that is all true. I, I mean, I agree, like that can happen and that can be a barrier, but it's not true everywhere. And institutions that have tried to adopt forecasting have often not stuck with it. And the fact that they tried to do it, I feel like is a sign against there being an issue with them kind of culturally not wanting to do it, right? Like they've tried to do it. So they're clearly not in that group of people that have a kind of cultural problem with forecasting. Um, but they still found it wanting in some way. And I think when you look at that, you kind of have to think about, uh, you know, well, well, why is that, right? Well, they're spending some money, they're spending some time on things. They're obviously not getting enough value from the information to justify the expense. And uh, and I think that if you can reduce the cost of forecasting to the point where you do feel confident that you can, you know, you can get information that's valuable. Because like, I, I guess that's the thing, like if we, if we research ways to do this that are like highly accurate, but it's so expensive that it's better for the decision maker to not use that information because the cost of getting it is so high, then we're wasting our time, right? So I think being able to do things cheaply is incredibly important. And the other reason, of course, to do that is, is that if you that it allows it to be a, a growth industry. At the moment, forecasting essentially subsists on public funding in one way or another, right? It's it's grants or, or private philanthropic funding. But most of the time it's don you know it's donors that support forecasting. And that's great. And I'm happy that people are willing to support what we're trying to do. But I feel like if you if something can pay for itself, it can grow and it can really grow, you know. Like you can get a grant and that's great. And, uh, you know, of course, like a lot of cool things have been supported by that. But if you can make it pay for itself, that potential income just kind of blows out, you know, what you might do with grant money just because it, it, it just becomes self-funding. And that and that in itself like can lead to all kinds of wonderful uh, research and opportunities and all that kind of stuff because you just have the revenue to support it and you can do that. And the third reason why I think it's so important that to have paying clients forecasts is the missing piece of the puzzle is like, how do we make sure we're targeting to what people want? And I think there's no better sign that people are saying, yes, this is what I need, than they're paying you for it. Like that's valuable. But also you then get the feedback. You get to find out what's helpful to people and what trade-offs they're interested in. Because there's obviously trade-offs everywhere, right? The cost of forecasting versus spending that money on some other way of getting information for your decision-making. You know, you could hire an analyst and say, I'm going to pay you just to go and read about this and I'm going to call you every week and you tell me what you think is going on. That's one way you could get information and that might be very helpful to you. And that might cost you the same as hiring some forecasters to produce probability estimates, right? There's a bunch of things you might do if you need to kind of improve your access to information. And, um, and so can forecasting compete with those other things? Can it provide enough accuracy edge and enough helpful perspective that it justifies the cost? I think that's a very, very important question. And, and you don't see that really considered. Like the, the, the um, you know, most forecasting projects are not really focused on that area. I think because we're still thinking about a lot of basic research, but that's what we're trying to do. So the, so the goal for SWIFT is can we turn all of this forecasting research into something that people value enough to pay for it? And I think if you can get that, then you're on the right track. So I guess one question is, what kind of clients is this really good for? If it costs a lot of money to pay good analysts, highly skilled analysts to, to answer a bunch of questions about your, your area. What 
kind of leverage do you need? Who are the people, the companies, government agencies for whom this makes sense to spend all that money on one decision or a set of decisions? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, yeah, that you've hit on it there, really. Obviously, if it's if you're very accurate, but very expensive, it's going to be, it's only going to be worth it for very big scale decisions of the type that governments might make or uh, very big multinationals. And yeah, that, that is probably who who is currently willing to pay for some forecasting stuff is at that scale. Uh, it has got started to get smaller. And I think that like at SWIFT, we've managed to reduce the cost of doing forecasting by quite a lot. And I should also say, like, one of the things we think about is not just the financial cost, but you're also thinking about the um, the, the time cost, right? So, like, how, how much time is, do I need from you? Like, you want to make a decision and you hire a Swiss sender to come and do it. Our goal is not just to save, it's to save you time, it's to save you money, but, like, how much time you have to put into that process is also, that's a cost to you, right? So if I'm calling you all the time to, to do clarifications and this kind of thing, that's that's costing you time and that that's adding to the bill for participating. So I think that, yeah, in general, it's governments that are probably are going to be the first customers. And that's what we've seen, right, with all the original forecast scale stuff. Um, but it's starting to, to filter down now and get into smaller firms. Finance industry obviously can be like not as big, um, but still find those things very valuable. I, ideally, you would get down to the level of like SMEs and, and whatever who, who where you can provide something that's valuable to them. So one question I think is interesting, just as an abstract question, is what do you do as the head of, a, you know, you're producing forecasts, if your Swift Center forecasters produce a forecast that you think is just wrong, what do you do? Oh, that's happened. I learned my lesson with this, like back in Good Judgment uh, project days. So I think there's two things going on. So one is, I think there's, there's a real difference in your mindset between being an admin and being a forecaster. And I, and I don't think it's really very possible to do both. I, I don't think you can really have the same mindset in both ways. It's a little bit like if you ever make a movie, right, that it, it's very hard to, to direct a movie and produce a movie. There are people that can do it, right? But it's a famously very, very, because you're in a totally different mindset, right? Like one person has to just think creatively about what they want to do. And the other one has to think like, well, what does this cost? <laughs> How long have you been here? Whatever that kind of thing. And it's very hard to have those two mindsets at the same time, right? Like you, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think for forecasting, it's similar. If you're an admin on a forecasting project, it's very difficult to get yourself in the headspace of, of thinking about something from a forecasting point of view as well. So I think people tend to kind of fall into one of the other roles. And the lesson I've learned with over the years is like, if you're an admin and the forecast looks looks weird to you, just leave it alone. Like, don't don't thumb the scale, and we just don't do it. And I and um I know that um, there are some stories from uh, the government forecasting competition days, like the pre twenty sixteen days, where project leads would do that, and, and like it was always a disaster. Like I've heard of people saying, you know, I saw this crazy forecast from our team, and I couldn't. It seemed totally wrong to me, and they were ignoring this important thing, or, or they, they were discounting something that I thought was really important, and I screwed with it, and it just it was a bad thing to do. And so I think, in general, like I've just learned to never do that. So if you hire the Swiss Center, you get the views of Swiss Center's forecasters unadulterated. <laughs> and that is it's like, not Michael Story's views. No, no, I, I'm completely agnostic. I, don't, I, I never have a view, and I, I never forecast on our stuff, actually. I haven't once. 
I, I take a great interest in the forecast. So of course I read them all. I suggest questions sometimes. I'll think, oh, what about this? And you know, could we add this into the mix or something like that? Uh, but I never, uh, I never screw around with it. I don't forecast. I don't give a view. I never have an opinion about what the forecast should be. Um, I just don't do it because I, I just learned you, you just shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> it never ends well. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about prediction markets. One thing that's often suggested is instead of getting skilled forecasters and paying them to produce a bunch of forecasts, you can just set up a prediction market or set up a, a market on an existing prediction platform and get a bunch of people to bet on whatever your question is. And then that's your forecast. Yes. Well, what, what do you think about that? Is, is our prediction markets a viable uh, alternative to the kind, of, the kind of forecasting that Swift Center does or not? Yeah, so, well, so, I mean, all of these different structures, they're all trying to do the same thing, right? They're all trying to get a bunch of smart people and aggregate their views in a way that is more accurate than any one person could do. So a survey of forecasters, a prediction market, they're all doing that in a different way. So like a prediction market over time, like even even waiting over time, right? So um, if you have a bunch of, say, 100 people making forecasts every week and you score them over time, as you and I both know, right, some people will emerge as being consistently more accurate. And over time, you can give them a higher weighting, right? So you might start off taking the average of 100 people's views. After a year, you've noticed that like 12 of those people are much more accurate than everybody else. And so you kind of, you should listen to them a bit more, right? And the people that are consistently uh, inaccurate, you should listen to them a little bit less. And over time, you'll end up with a better answer. In a prediction market, the same thing happens through the market, right? The, the, the people that are consistently more accurate get richer. And because of that, they move the market price more and, and people are less willing to bet against them. And so you end up with a kind of similar thing where the prices end up being influenced by the people that are historically more accurate. And that's all fine. But I, I do feel that sometimes people propose solutions. I think it's a good example of the kind of assumptions being a bit off problem that, that you sometimes get, where if you start with a kind of slightly faulty set of assumptions, you can be very smart and, and think about how a market might work, but it, it ends up a bit wonky and not quite working because the assumptions are not correct. And so what a lot of people will say is, well, you know, here's a dispute. Uh, we can just have a market. Like, let's just open a market on X and people can bet. And then we get a market price and that's the probability, right? And that sounds great. Uh, and you go, oh, that sounds perfect. That's free. I can, get, I can get my information for free. That's what you're already saying, right? You go, I want to get some information about how likely X is and I can get this for free. But of course, it's not free, right? Like, so, like, why would people be in your market? They have to get compensated somehow, right? That's basically the kind of core of the problem. You're trying to do two things at once, right? You're trying to provide a kind of fun environment that attracts players to come and join your market and, and play with each other. And then you're trying to produce this information that, that you think is important about the world from the activities in that, in that market, right? And do, trying to solve two problems at the same time is like a classic trap where it sounds like, oh, this is perfect, right? This is so efficient but but it's actually not efficient right and if you if you think about it but like that your assumption should be that that's not efficient basically right because you're trying to do two things you're getting pulled in two directions those things don't necessarily gear very well together the scale of those things that you know the incentives are all wonky it's very it's that's not normally a nice way to do things and quite often you will encounter like very well-meaning people that will try and solve problems like that and they go, oh, you've got this thing over here and this thing. You can connect them up and you can make something that works. 
And it sounds lovely until you really dig into it and realize like, okay, you, you, you get screwed over here. The classic example uh, in the kind of charity world um, that, pe- that people talk about is play pumps, which was this idea that you could um, go to an impoverished community that needs uh, that needs wells to be dug to, to drink for drinking water. And then you also have kids with nothing, nowhere to play. And so what you could do is you could build a roundabout that kids could play on, like a merry-go-round thing, right? They would push it round. And then that would power a pump that would pump water from the from the ground. And that was the idea, right? So you're like, okay, you're solving two problems there. The kids don't have play crayon equipment. You make the playground equipment, generate some power, and you use the power to power the, uh, the well. And there you go, you solve two problems at once. But immediately you can see the problem, right? Which is that, like, the demand for kids... To, to like run around their thing probably isn't like doesn't match the need for water right like those the, those two things probably aren't like in step and so you you run into a lot of problems you're trying to like pull off all this power like why do kids like playing on that kind of equipment because it has momentum like the fun thing about it is the momentum and then you're like taking away the momentum to power the well like it's not fun anymore so they never played on the things because they would stop you know it just doesn't work right very frequently when you hear like a pitch for an idea where they're gonna try and marry two things like that, you know, it doesn't quite work out. And so I think prediction markets are, are kind of in the same group. I wouldn't say they're as like dysfunctional as those other examples, but you've got some of the same issues that if you want information, but like the people participating in your in your market are not there to try and produce information for you. They're there to do something else. And so you end up with with this sort of mismatching problem. So my first concern about prediction markets basically is that secondly, it's expensive to run a prediction market. So when you talk to people who are advocates, they don't talk about the cost of running the market. They go, oh, well, it's like free. You get free information because people just spend market. Yeah. Okay, but who, who builds them and maintains the market? Somebody has to do that, right? Like that has someone's time and that costs money and you, you have to pay somebody to do that. And so um, that's an expensive proposition and that costs money. And so you're not getting information for free. You're getting it for the cost of setting up the market. And, and those costs can be quite substantial. And again, often exceed the value of the information produced. The, the third thing is like, okay, so how are you going to pay people to be in your market? A lot of people will start with the assumption, well, of course people join the market because they want to make money, right? Well, kind of, but do they think that they can make that money in a prediction market? Right? Maybe not. Um, something you hear a lot in, in American circles is if prediction markets were legal, all of these things would be different, right? Like people would be in markets all the time. It would be super easy to set up a market. Everybody would be doing it, whatever, right? But in the UK, prediction markets are legal and you don't see any of that, really, right? Uh, and the reason is, is the overhead costs are quite substantial and the demand to participate in them is pretty small. If you go on, like, one of the biggest sites in the UK for, for gambling is Betfair Exchange. If you go on Betfair Exchange, you can find, like, markets on lots of unusual things, but they're very, very thinly traded. There's not a lot of people on there. There's not a huge amount of demand to do this. People might go on there and, like, bet trivial amounts of money for a bit of fun. But really, there's not there's not a big thriving market there for people to participate in, and it's not because it's illegal, right? It, it's perfectly legal. It's it's all fine. It's just that it's not that attractive. And there's basically the general rule of thumb about things like this is people are actually most attracted to markets where there's a big degree of uncertainty of randomness rather than uncertainty, I should say. So people like randomness, but they don't like the uncertainty. So what's the most popular thing to to bet on uh, in pretty much every country, regardless of whatever else is legal in terms of gambling, will be lotteries. Lotteries are immensely popular. People love to gamble on lotteries, right? In the US, it's very popular. But even in the UK, where we have a very big gambling industry, you can bet on anything you want in the UK. It's pretty, I mean, not everything, but it's it's pretty 
open in terms of regulation. It's not like the US, you know, the UK is very, very open and all that sort of stuff. And the most popular thing still is a lottery because, you know, I can buy a ticket, you can buy a ticket, and we have exactly the same chance of winning. If we're in a prediction market, well, you you might know something. I don't know, right? If I'm a kind of ignorant uh, person to that topic, then there's no incentive for me to join. So who takes the other side, right? (laughs) So the problem you end up with is like, People won't do that. So I think, again, prediction markets are quite good for evaluating people. Like if you tell me, right, if you, Robert, say to me, hey, Michael, I'm so convinced that this thing is going to happen. I think that, uh, you know, that University of Hawaii football team is going to win their championship this year. And I'm so sure about it. And they're, they're, they're great. right? And I say, well, maybe they're not. And, uh, and you're not. And I say, let's bet on it. And you don't bet with me. Well, now I've got some information about you that, that you don't really believe that. Right. So I'm learning about you, but I'm not really learning about the outcome. So I think what you tend to see is like where you get a lot of people getting involved in things is where there's an element of randomness and that kind of thing. And that can pull people in. So sports gambling, whatever, is very popular. So I think there's there's not the demand to be in to be in those markets. Like I think a lot of US-based people, kind of the point that we were making before about people not thinking about other countries, but a lot of US-based people say, ah, this is because it's illegal. Um, but where it's not illegal, people don't don't do it very much. And I think the third issue that you have is like, well, then how do you compensate people for being in markets? And people that have run corporate prediction markets, if you talk to them, they nearly always tell the same story, which is you can get lots of people to be in your prediction market uh, for fun and you're not paying them, but not for the things that you care about. So if you're running a company, you care about, you know, are we going to close this deal? What's our next quarter going to look like? These are the things that you really want to know about, right? Like, here's a, here's a merger that we're proposing. We're going to buy this other company. Is it going to happen? What price are we going to end up paying for this? All this kind of stuff. And you open a market on that. They're just dead. Nobody cares. <laughs> no one wants to participate in that because it's not fun. But what, if you then say, oh, who's going to win the Super Bowl? Who's going to win the presidential election? Then everyone participates because it's more fun. So you're now compensating people in fun. And that's great. And you get lots of people participating in your market. But if your goal was to produce information, it's not happening. And so that I think that explains why a lot of those markets end up not continuing or not being as popular because they're just not doing their job in terms of producing information. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I agree. It seems like prediction markets need to be highly leveraged to really produce, uh, be very liquid to produce a, a good information. And you have to attract a lot of people. And if the you know main purpose of, of prediction markets is to hedge against real risk, it needs to be something that's really valuable to people with deep pockets. Yes. I mean, I think there are, there are you know, and that's not to say that you can't solve problems with markets. I mean, I think there are like, there are like two things I would say very much in favor of prediction markets. One is, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bullshit test, right? Like if, if you're telling me I believe this and I say, let's bet on it and you say no, well, then I, I, I can take you a little bit less seriously because, because, you know, I think, well, you don't really mean what you're saying. You're just kind of saying it to be funny or, or to be provocative, whatever. And of course, because so many people do th- say things to be provocative and you're not quite sure to take them seriously, having some kind of market can be a helpful way to kind of discern who's actually serious about their view from people that are just like saying stuff. But, right? but also people with deep pockets may decide it's a cheap way to buy attention for their opinion. Oh, indeed. They've manipulated markets that way, right? They've like, I've got plenty of money. I can move the Iowa economic prediction market or wherever it was. Uh, by spending a lot of my money, and now it looks like this guy's going to win an election. Yes, that, that's also true, and 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 you can see those those things happen. And absolutely right. If you don't know how deep someone's pockets are, you don't know whether how sincere they are if they make a bet. Right? If if someone bets you ten bucks, it doesn't mean very much, you know. But if it, if they bet you a thousand, well, maybe they're secretly 
much richer than they appear and, and a thousand is to them is 10 bucks to you. So um, yes, that's very true. But to some extent, I think you can, you can take people a bit more seriously when they're willing to bet. I think that's worth something. Uh, I think the other interesting part of it as well is like, yeah, identifying calibrated people. If you want to know if somebody is well calibrated, if they win a lot of bets, then they're probably a pretty good forecaster with a pretty good view of the future. So I think, again, if you're going back to who is a good forecaster, prediction markets are giving you a lot of valuable information about that. But the market itself is not always producing the information that you want. You know, if it's something major that's very fun, you know, presidential election, a general election, something massive, you know, the Super Bowl that's coming, sports gambling, stuff like that. Those things, yeah, you, you, you look at the odds of, um, you know, who's going to win a horse race, the favorite will tell you a lot because people are having fun um, and they're being paid partly in fun. I don't know if you've ever gone to horse racing. I won one pound one time. Oh, well done. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it, thank you. It's a lot more fun if you if you bet on a horse. So, so there's a bunch of people willing to enter the market and uh, and and put in some cash and 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 liquidate the market, you know, increase the liquidity of the market because they're enjoying themselves. And so that then can motivate people that are like, you know, the people that want to handicap horse races and really want to get into it and, you know, think, oh, well, the form today and the weather and it rained on Tuesday at 6 p.m. and whatever, right? And they know all that stuff and they read the form book. Uh, those people can then make money off, you know, you and me, like I, when I go to horse racing, you know, you, you put a little bit of cash down on every horse because it's it's a bit of entertainment. And you're having fun. So you so there are possibilities like that, right? Subsidizing a market might work, right? You could say, if I really care about this outcome, I'm going to throw some money into this market so that it makes it positive sum for everybody to participate. And that will bring in forecasters that want to want to get some of that cash. And that could work. But again, how does that compare to how I could spend the money to get information some other way? So I think one of the failures of imagination when thinking about this is always, well, you can improve it by this much by spending, ca- spending cash here. So, okay, but what am I spending? And what's the opportunity cost of that money compared to alternatives that I might have, right? I can hire a I can hire a summer intern to like do nothing but read about this and talk to me about it every week. How about that? (laughs) So I I think we have to think about the wider universe of options for a decision maker before, before saying, well, like we can fix this problem by spending lots of cash um, because that, I think that's not good enough as a response. The the, the other thing I'd say about prediction markets, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but is when you think about things like conditional forecasting. So, like I mentioned, like one of the things that decision makers really value is conditional forecasts. Like if this happens, then what happens? When we think about like the the crisis in Russia recently, right over the summer, uh, with the Wagner Group kind of challenging the the the, uh, the the Russian government, and there was this kind of potential of things really to get bad. Uh, Swift forecasters did a bunch of forecasts there about what they thought the implications could be for other other areas. So like if this crisis isn't resolved in the next, I think we picked like two weeks as deadline. So, you know, how does this affect things like the situation in Ukraine or in other parts of the world? You know, that things could, could, could be affected by this. And um, that's very hard to do a market on, right? Because most of the time those things aren't resolved. So if you're relying on people's incentives to just be in a market to make money, once you're two layers deep like that, it becomes not worth it. You're going to have to avoid one of the one half of those things. If I make a market saying, like, if the Russia crisis is resolved in two weeks, then here's the bet. If it's not resolved in two weeks, here's the bet. You, you're now having to put like twice as much effort, right? And one of those, only one of those outcomes will, will, one of those universes will happen. And we can only resolve our bet in one of those universes. And it's just not worth it. I think also there's like a lot of weird assumptions about people's behavior. Like I talk to people in the forecasting community 
who sometimes have this like very very uh, like dark triad view of people's behavior they're like well if you write you know you have to kind of assume that people will try and scam your market somehow which is true like if you run a market it's open to the world then you've got to worry about like bad actors which means you have to make it like super defensible against that um and that can then lead to you again like being less relevant and less valuable so i i think you almost end up with two approaches where your forecasting project can be chess.com but for forecasting where it's all about like the forecaster and having fun and ranking forecasters and who's the best and who's going to win and what's your forecasting ELO, which is your Brian score or whatever, right? And that's fun, but we're not doing anything. Chess.com doesn't produce, nobody in the White House reads chess.com to find out like a chess move. They might, they might be a chess player. That's great, but you're not, you're not doing anything outside of it. It's, it's for the participants. But if we're trying to produce information, we have to suddenly have a completely different set of trade-offs and do things like very differently. One last question, Michael. In your official opinion as director of the Swift Center, what's the best Taylor Swift song? Marriage Story. Was it was it called? Love Story, that's what I meant. Love Story. That's that's the best that's the best Taylor Swift song. Love it. Good answer, good solid answer. Yeah, it's funny, we I, I hear quite a lot about Taylor Swift because I have obviously I have a Google alert for like Swift Center. And then when someone takes a photo of her and she's in the middle, it will say Taylor Swift, comma, center. And then that pops up in my Google Alerts. Thank you so much, Michael. This is a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate being here, man. It's great to talk about these things.